Welcome back to The Consequences Podcast with Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Ladies and gents, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Sean and I are very excited today to, to welcome a special guest. Uh, he is a, a drummer, percussionist, vocalist, sometimes songwriter, a member of one of the most underrated British bands of the 1970s. And I'm not talking about 10CC, although he was in them as well. Uh, I'm talking about the wonderful pilot. Yeah. So uh, we could only be about to introduce uh, Stuart Tosh. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Stuart. Stuart. Welcome. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me along. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I was very lucky as a kid. The reason I got into music... Um, my, my brother was a keyboard player, uh, saddling along with us. Uh, never turned professional, but really good uh, player, you know. Mm. Um, played for many years. Uh, but my dad uh, worked for HMV, Parlophone, various other labels, which eventually became EMI. So mm. what used to happen on a Monday morning, a huge box would come up from the EMI factory in Hayes, Middlesex, and in the box would be albums, EPs, and singles of all the stuff that, uh, all the music that EMI uh, recorded from wow. classical through to, in, in, you know, in the 50s, it was trad jazz, classical, big band, then into skiffle, and then into rock and roll. Yeah. So uh, the, the beauty was that all these uh, samples arriving at the house uh, arrived with me or my father before any DJ or record shop would get them. Wow. So in the 60s, I was getting the Beatles stuff before anybody had heard it. Oh, that's direct. incredible, isn't it? And and Adam Faith, etc. as well. You know, so yeah, you, how wonderful that must have been. That must have been oh, so exciting. Amazing. Well, one of my first bands in Edinburgh... I mean, what band didn't like the Beatles? I mean, they were just such a huge influence. And 60s, so exciting musically. Everything was kicking off, you know, and experimental stuff with music, just endless. Uh, and a band I played, and we did a lot of uh, um, Beatles stuff. And I remember it was uh, She Loves You, the single, arrived on the Monday morning. So I got in touch with the guys, and I said, Hey, I've got the Beatles new single. So, of course, in those days, it was vinyl. So you put the needle on and off and, and getting all the chords and the lyrics down. We rehearsed it for the whole week. And we had a gig on a Friday and on a Saturday. On the Saturday night... On ITV, I think it was, what was the name? The exclusive was the Beatles were going to play their new single, which was uh, She Loves You. Uh, and we had, we had learned it on Friday night. We played it and said, it's the Beatles' new single. And, of course, no response because nobody had heard it. Played it on Saturday <laughs> night. It was Saturday night. girls were starting to stream. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and a guy came up to me and said, how did you learn that in two hours? <laughs> this exclusive broadcast. And I thought, ooh. 
Better not do that. My father finds out I'll be hungry and quarter. <laughs> yeah. But that, that was one of my memories of getting the Beatles stuff, you know. Uh, oh, amazing. Man. Incredible. Was the, was the programme Ready, Steady, Go? Was that an ITV programme? No, um, no, Ready, Steady, Go was more of a sort of live thing, wasn't it? And it was on for mm. about an hour. This is sort of in, in competition, if you like, with Jukebox Jury. Ah, okay. uh, where, they, where they had bands on. And it was Keith Fordyce, was it, that used to introduce it? Anyway, it's great age, you know, it's age. Yeah, oh, we know, <laughs> we know that. Great that those uh, that the audience got a, you know, a, well, that was the first performance of the song anywhere, perhaps. No, they, I don't know whether the Beatles were performing it live ahead of that, but whatever, an, an, an exclusive, absolutely brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Full disclosure here, Stuart. Ah. Uh, one of my proudest possessions. Oh, yes, I remember that. This is February the 1st, 1975, the day after my 11th birthday. Wow. I get my first ever 50p EMI record token as a present, right? Right. And I go into a record shop, which I think was in Maidstone in Kent. We were with our grandparents. And I had this world of opportunity in front of me. And the, the record that was kind of featured on the counter at this record shop was, uh, I think it had probably just been released, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And it was this January by Pilot. And uh, what an absolutely magical record. Um, thank you, Stuart, for starting me off on, as you can see behind me, uh, a, a long, got, and, a long and expensive two. career. <laughs> yes, you got one or two there. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it really was one of those records that even now, when you hear it on Radio Two or um, you know t- Top of the Pops reruns or coming through your hi-fi, it, it just leaps out of the speakers um, in, in an amazing way. So, a little bit later in the chat, Stuart, we'd love to talk more about Pilot. January. Um, kind of subject. I was doing a bit of research here, Stuart, and um, I believe that you met David and Ian, that's David Payton and Ian Bernson, when you depped for another drummer with a band on the same bill and they kind of clocked you and, and headhunted you. Is, is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, the drummer, this was when they had uh, dance halls, uh, mecca dance halls, mm. uh, a big, big ballroom in Edinburgh called Tiffany's. And the drummer of the band, he was a band leader. And uh, poor misguided fella, he used to go and watch Scotland play football all around the world. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he asked me to dip. So I did. It was a covers band. And um, as you say, David was the bass player and Ian the guitarist. And uh, Ian's wife was actually one of the singers right. uh, at the time. And David liked my, my playing and invited me down to a studio in Edinburgh where Billy Lyle was the engineer. Was that yeah. Craig Hall yeah. Studios? Craig Hall, yes. Craig right. Hall Studios. Essentially, they were a, a studio for Scottish repertoire, you know, squeeze box and uh, outside broadcasts of pipe bands, etc. Uh, but they, they did a lot of stuff for radio as well, people reading poetry, etc. Uh, but the room, the studio room was fantastic sound for rock and roll. And... Mm. Um, so we just did all our demos there. And I was 
gobsmacked to hear how many songs that they had both written, uh, mostly David's songs, I have to say, uh, and Magic was one of the songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, they'd already had a demo of it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's definitely a hit. Just such an instant catchy song you know no, magic, yeah. mag magic is incredible and paul was kind enough um, to send me a link Stuart, to a wonderful album of demos that i think came out fairly recently paul is it um, I don't really know. The, the Cray Call demos, 71 yeah. to 76. I didn't even know these till last week, but I've been listening to them a lot because they're, they're fantastic. They I mean, really been, are. Well, I, I don't know if I've got them somewhere. I need to get in touch with David. <laughs> oh, well, I know there's sort of A's, A's and B's uh, that were released a while back. Uh, yeah, but the, these are the actual demos. I believe they have been officially released. I just found them on YouTube. And, of course, we'll, we'll send you a link, and we might even be able to play a couple of extracts. The, the, what strikes you is the, is the quality, not just of the, of the playing um, and the, the sound of, you know, the recording quality, which, which you mentioned previously, and I guess Billy engineered these as well. But the, arrange, the arrangements are, are pretty much there. Yes. I mean... January, uh, for example, the the demo of January, which kind of features mellotron and <laughs> and and flute, is absolutely wonderful. Wonderful. And Long it's, before it, it's so different, you know. isn't it? And I, I'm I'm always a sucker, Stuart, for a, a mellotron. Uh, and it, <laughs> the flute, the flute thing's playing the whole way through, isn't it? It's marvelous. It's absolutely fantastic. Let's uh, we'll treat you to a little uh, a, a little burst of this. I think it's absolutely fabulous. I've got a story about mellotron ah. as well. Oh. Oh, please now you're ahead. talking, now you're talking. <laughs> There's a, a really good YouTube thing. We can send you a link to this. And okay. We've got demos for Library Door, Lazy Davy, Joe. Uh, there's a, a couple of Billy demos on there. Meet Me Now, Now That I've Found You, which is great. Right. My Lonely Companion, Reason, Cold Stories, etc., etc. Here's the January one. Oh, yeah. It's magnificent, that, isn't it? And that's real flute as well, isn't it? Yes, Billy really yeah, played really, the flute. Billy really played flute, yeah, he did, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, my song was there, isn't it? It really yes. is, and all the harmonies uh, are there in place. Ian, Ian wasn't a member of the band until quite late on, in a way. Uh, it was after we'd done the original uh, stuff in Abbey Road, doing magic hmm. uh, so he wasn't there to do his wonderful diddle 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 Yeah, uh, that's on right. that particular uh, part of the song. Yeah, it was, a, it was a wonderful freshness that Craig Hall had, that room. It was really a nice live sound. Absolutely. For more, and there's for more a, pop and rock. Tell me if I'm, I, I might just be fanciful here, Stuart, but I hear real parallels with the strawberry, the strawberry sound. Um, uh, would you say that Craig Hall was like the strawberry of the north, if you like? <laughs> I, I hear that, that I think the, the sound is very, very similar. It's very tight and precise, clean, but has got a real vibrancy to it. Yes, it was It was very bright, that room. It, it was essentially not muted. In, in, it wasn't uh, acoustically 
suppressed, as you, if you like, the room yeah. as other studios were. I mean, there are other studios in Edinburgh. It's just the fact that uh, Billy Lyle was the engineer, that particular one, that we, we used it. And I'm very grateful that we did. Hence the, the wonderful sound. Yes. You know, it's just a unique sound uh, that, that that place had. Absolutely. And, and you're singing on that, that demo, I, I imagine? Uh, probably back in vocals. Oh, David's a singer. I, <laughs> I'm not a singer. I can... I prefer sort of doing falsetto, but my own voice is not. I'm, I'm never a lead, although I did one. Yes, we, we, yeah, we want to talk about that <laughs> later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so, would you have been sitting on top of the, the the harmony stack then on on the pilot stuff? Yeah, yeah, the high end stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the Mellotron, a strange instrument. I played yeah. in a band uh, in Europe, and they had a stereo Mellotron and a Hammond. Wow. Now, the, the stereo ha- uh, Mellotron, the weight of this thing was unbelievable. <laughs> I remember carrying up a spiral staircase in a club in France. It's about oh, killed them. All four of us had to try and lift the damn thing. Wow. And it was tem- temperamental, but you could... The beauty of being a stereo one, stereo one, the one on Abbey Road was just a, a mono one, as the thing in, in Craig Hall. But you, on the left hand, you could have strings or whatever, and the right hand, you could have another instrument. You couldn't do that on a yeah. single one, although I think you could split the keyboard in half. So you, you probably had eight options as opposed to, sorry, four options as opposed to two. So right. but it, was a, it was a devil of a heavy thing. I remember that. Oh, I don't no. know what happened to it. So, the concept, it was great, you know, just recording tape. Yeah. over a head and you press the keyboard and the tape would only run I think six or eight seconds so you had you couldn't have prolonged the note it would just cut out uh, so that, I mean kind of a similar thing in a way to uh, the the gizmo where you're pressing a thing against a string slightly different but um, you know same sort of concept. No, absolutely, and, and um, a, a bigger, a, a bigger sound. I'd never heard of a stereo one, and I'm trying to get my head around it, Stuart. That would mean that you'd have to have two lots of tape machines inside it for every key. So yeah, it would, was, so, so it would be twice as heavy, wouldn't it? <laughs> That's that was, mad. I mean, the Hammond organ, by comparison, was featherweight. It really was. <laughs> you know, lifting this thing was unbelievable. That's one thing I remember about it. And uh, I often thought, is it really worth it? Because it was, it was a bit of a pain. It used to keep breaking down and what have you. I mean, the concept was great, but the practicality of it was a challenge. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, was this a prog rock outfit you were, you were touring with? No, just a covers band. Just a covers band. Just a, <laughs> no problem. That, that was uh, Camel. That was later on. Yes. Sure, sure. So armed with these these fantastic demos, uh, um, you went down to EMI, and I presume that was a, a done deal, was it? I mean, uh, with armed with all those songs and those recordings, uh, w- was it relatively easy to get a deal? How did how did that happen? When I heard all these songs that David and Billy had, I said, I mean, what do you want to do with this? Do you want to just be songwriters? Do you want to be an act? What do you want to do? Mm-hmm. And they'd sent demos off to you know, the sort of good uh, labels at the time, Island Records and a few others to the A&E. And I kind of knew that a lot of these A&E guys would probably never play the tape. So right. there was a friend of mine, uh, 
who was a direct became a director of EMI Records, guy from Edinburgh working in London. So I made an appointment to see him, and off we went. We flew down, and um, he thought it was my dad coming to see him. Why not he coming down here? And then <laughs> so we, we went armed with uh, with a few of the songs, and of course, Magic was uh, the, the key one, mm-hmm. and. Um, we played the the songs to them in their office and in, in this fellow's office and uh, when magic was being played you could see the eyebrows going up and everybody's eyes you know yeah going well and more people are invited into the room to listen to it <laughs> good sign <laughs> oh, exciting we knew we got we had some sort of deal going uh, I think Warner Brothers were after us as well, but um, right. we we went to the EMI, so it's that, that was the, the done deal. I mean, they they thought with about thirty songs in the can, it might be Beatles Mark II, but uh, <laughs> you know, but uh, well, yeah, there you go. So we we were signed to EMI, and um, Alan Parsons was the uh, our producer, and we were his, the first band he ever produced. Actually, up till then, he was Is just in right? the house. In-house engineer at uh, Abbey Road, yeah. uh, working on big stuff. I mean, he worked on Dark Side of the Moon. He actually said he did several, well, more than several edits on the master tape of Dark Side of the Moon. <laughs> and I thought, you know, getting that wrong would be yeah. a bit of a... <laughs> yes. So, I mean, he's a very clever guy, immensely talented, clever guy, together with uh, Eric Wilson, who was his co-writer and uh, manager, and another chap. Uh, Andrew Powell. Oh, he did uh, the strings and things. Didn't he did he? the strings. Yeah. Ironically, all three of them were about six foot seven, you know. So, <laughs> hello. <laughs> A great, a great bunch of guys, um, and I think the reason we were, um, Alan was quite taken by how quickly we worked in the studio. We'd put things down in one or two takes, mm. uh, and he thought he had this project thing in his in the back of his mind to, to do, and he invited us to to be involved, knowing how quickly we could get things done. That was from being in the studio in Edinburgh. We just uh, yeah. let's go, and off we went. Yeah, you clearly were were so so together that the, the three of you at that, at that stage, yourselves and uh, yourself and and, and David and, and Billy. So, would you, were those? Uh, I mean, the first album, uh, which is called from the album of the same name. There we go. A, it's a fabulous, uh, fabulous LP. A great record. Did did you sort of record those backing tracks pretty much live? Then the three instruments all all together. I think we probably did. Yes. Mm. Yeah, we yeah. did. Yeah, and yeah. then. You just overdubbed. Um, there might be start with just rhythm guitar, bass, and drums, uh, and keyboards uh, added on, and then back in vocals. And then, if Alan thought strings were required or any other uh, instruments introduced, then yeah. that, that would happen. Fantastic. And this at Abbey Road, of course, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that was. <laughs> I bet what, that, that was a thrill. Yeah. Which room oh. were you in? Well, we we were in the studio too, where mm. you know who did all their albums, and uh, yeah. I was using 
there's a cupboard, there's a there's a big staircase goes up to the control room. Yes. And un, under there, there's two cupboards in which there are percussion instruments and various other bits and pieces. So I was probably using the same percussion that uh, the guys, the Beatles used, you know. So it was a great thrill to, to be using, being, just recording in that particular room, you know. It's just I'll incredible. Say. Well, it was kind of the EMI, all the EMI personnel... A lot of them were there. I'm looking at the credits on the album. David Mason played trumpet on that first album. I can't remember which track, but he, of course, was a trumpeter on Penny Lane, amongst other yes. Beatles tracks. Yes, I, I think he, he's just passed in about the last year or so. Oh, I remember okay. being a very tall, slim gentleman. And I mean gentleman, terribly proper tech. You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, that was a piccolo trumpet, tiny little thing with four valves. And, um, I mean, the, the top notes... Uh, I mean, the nearest thing you can hear to that is the opening of the One Show on BBC One. Okay, that sounds like sounds like a piccolo trumpet to me. But right. uh, yeah, he was he was amazing, amazing. Wow. Can we give his playing a little um, burst here? I've I've got the track up on YouTube. Oh, oh, hold on, Sean. Yeah. Which which track is it? Girl Next Door. Oh, okay, right. But I do believe he can't ignore his love for the. Oh, fantastic. It's yeah, so, yeah. That's really reminiscent of Penny Lane, isn't it? <coughs> Might be the same instrument, I guess. Uh, well, that would be, yes. Your piccolo yeah. trumpet's called. Yeah, yeah. Same, same thing, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. He was um, a very fine player. So obviously the, the big hit there was was Magic, which was was an even bigger hit in the US, which must have been extremely gratifying that you hit hit the ground, you know, you were off, off and running with it with a big hit straight away. Yes, yeah, tremendous. Um, sadly, we never toured there, and we oh really? We well, we never really toured at all. We did European and British gigs, but we should have. And we were number one with January for eleven weeks in Australia. Wow. And yeah. never, yeah, there's a, a huge Japanese fan club as well. There's still, um, you know, David's uh, keeps in touch with a lot of them. I occasionally dabble, but uh, <laughs> we should have we should have been there many years ago, and it never came off. So I know you were managed by uh, brothers, I think, who were the son of Ted Heath. That's Ted Heath, the, the band leader, not Ted Heath, the politician. Um, so how come you didn't get it together and, and tour in these other territories? Goodness knows. I really don't know. I think they... I, 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 definitely want to answer. We should We should really have been out there, and mm. heaven knows why we never went. Um, right. We did so many promotions for uh, both Australia and New Zealand TV and for Japanese uh, in London area when we were down there. Right. But, ne but never did go. Although, latterly, we, I did go with David and... Uh, uh, pilot, although Ian wasn't involved in that particular tour. Mm -hmm. uh, we did Japan, we didn't go to Australia. Um, slightly moving on to 10 CC, when we first went there in 77, uh, and both Graham and Eric were invited along to see these shows that were like sort of Michael Parkinson interview, and uh, they wanted me along because they wanted about pilot, and it got embarrassed. I said to Eric and Graham, I said, listen, 
this has nothing to do with 10cc, you know, <laughs> tell them no. And they were very kind, said, no, come along. So they were interviewing me just as much as they were interviewing Eric and Graham. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was interesting. But again, sadly, we never, we never went. Do you yes. think you, you thought of yourselves a, as a studio band? I think so, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Billy Billy was definitely a studio uh, bird. He, he didn't want to be out there at all. He, he, he didn't like touring. Yeah. He didn't, didn't like the limelight like that. He was quite happy to produce great sounds and co-write with uh, David or just write on his own and, and record other artists and what have you. So he, he, didn't, he wasn't keen on... The routine of uh, touring. Shame, a very talented guy. Very talented guy. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the, the evidence suggests that Pilot were a, basically a shit-hot live act, uh, if you pardon the French. I mean, there's... Um, I don't know whether you've got this link, Sean. The uh, Pilot live um, in 1975, a BBC radio concert programme. No. Uh, and it's really powerful. I mean... Uh, I guess the perception at the time was that you were something of a teeny bop act or something. I remember seeing you in, seeing seeing you in Looking and things like that, but it kind of undercut what the band could do. I think. Yes, that was uh, the category we were slotted into. Very f- yeah, um, yeah, little pop band, and we were so, kind of more than that, really. As the yes. music uh, live, live, it was uh, more of a, a rock. Uh, pop band more than just a pop band if you like yeah, yeah absolutely a hard harder funkier edge to it yeah well mm. and I, I very much want to just delve briefly on that one uh Stuart, exactly what you've just said here's that link that paul was just mentioning bbc radio concert program 1975. It's incredible playing, isn't it? I mean, listen to that bass. That's yeah. the Rickenbacker. That's David's Rickenbacker bass, I guess. Uh, before you even start on the drums or the great flams and everything, it's yeah. just it's it's really it's really funky. It sounded yeah, like it sounded like Weather Report or something like that. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Very kind of funky. The days of the laser beam synthesizer. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's what Billy was playing. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. They're quite limited in those days, uh, but of course developed hugely. And it's become well. That's you know, it's computer music now, really, isn't it? Mostly, yeah. Pop yeah. music, but yeah, it was good to do that. It was good fun. Um, we had we did a few live things actually. Uh, in Capital Radio, I remember doing stuff like that, and then various other radio stations. So those are the days we'd set gear up and panic. <laughs> 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 Off you go. <laughs> yeah. You were mentioning before, Stuart, the, uh, the kind of um, some really groovy, funky, rocky things um, that you did, particularly for me on your third album. Can you tell us how you ended up working with Roy Thomas Baker, better known for his, his work with Queen, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm not sure that came about. I've, but just, I think they just wanted a change. I was quite happy with Alan, but uh, mm-hmm. I don't know how it came about. Anyway, he was nominated and... Uh, 
another genius. Yes. Another genius. Fantastic. We we went to Canada to do that album, a place called Moran Heights, and we named the album after it. We had engineers up from uh, New York to engineer it. Okay. And uh, these guys came in thinking, oh, yeah, we know. We, we know it all. And Roy had them running around like headless chickens. <laughs> box, plug that in the back of that, and then get the other box and plug that in there, and then do this and do that. And then the sound came up. We all went, wow, how do you do that? Wow. So he's yeah. a very clever guy. Yeah. Mad as crazy guy, but fun to work with. I bet. And he was famous for plugging in multiple multi-track recorders oh. wasn't he so you'd get ni- yep. ni- 96 track recordings yeah Did, i remember would, he, had, he had 18 mics around my kit wow wow uh, i've never had so many mics you know around the kit so it, uh, it was interesting it was interesting big big sound i mean the vocals we did uh david and i uh were just it was days on end and that's what queen would do because yeah multi-lading uh yeah. You know, it'd have you at the mic uh, almost whispering the line and then standing back and singing very loud. Ah, right, doing the same line. Interesting. Okay. In the same line, maybe about eight, eight voices doing that one note, then mixing down, you know, so it becomes like a huge choir sounding. Not choir, but uh, just yeah. lots of voices like Queen yeah. had. Uh, yeah, you know, they multi multi layered all their voices. Yeah, you can uh, really hear that. There's, I think my favourite track on the album is "Too Many Hopes." It's a real, yeah. ep- It's a real epic, isn't it? Yeah. And you can hear yeah. the, the way it's recorded, the way it's mixed. Yeah. The real echoes of of Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. in there, I think. There's another track on, what was it? Heard it all before, quite like that one. I think that should have been a single that never was, but there you go. Mind you, I mean, the singles that were on the album, Canada and Penny in My Pocket, I mean, they both missed, but I don't know how, because no. great, great choices for singles. I mean, you can't always get all the luck, I suppose, but a real shame that it wasn't. you didn't get a hit off that record, I think. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Who knows? Public taste changes, <clears throat> whatever. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, the the, the band. I, I like the the sound of the band on that record. I know Billy had left, and and Ian was writing, and it gives it a bit of a harder edge. Mm. Um, yeah. you know, as a, as a bona fide rock record, I think it's a lot, uh, a lot ballsier, isn't it? Yeah. Well, Ian essentially was a jazz guitarist. I mean, mm. he 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 was born in Shetland, and in those days there was no Radio One. Oh, yeah, there's the, the light service in the home program. So in the light service, you get big band uh, jazz and, uh, you know, various other current things, mostly ballad singers in those days. But he would learn uh, just listening to the radio, all the chords, rather than play a traditional Scottish instrument, mm. play guitar, and absolutely incredible player. And you can hear it in his playing um, on, the, on the tracks, his technique. Wonderful, wonderful player. I guess we have to uh, um, 
talk about the hand claps. Right? Yes. Which um, became, am I imagining this, or on your third album, did it have a, a thing like saying no hand claps on this album or something? It did, didn't it? <laughs> it did. Uh, so how, how did you get to that stage? They were real signature sound. Who, who kind of introduced them? Was it Alan? Was it yourself? It was, it was Alan. It was okay. Alan did it, and then it kind of stuck. And right. There was some sort of noise gate, put them through, you know, it was quite brash, really, uh, right. in the mix. But I think it was Roy Thomas Baker that actually hinted, <laughs> you know, no hand claps on this. <laughs> because they, they're, very different. they're so prominent, aren't they? On um, I was listening to Call Me Round, for example, which, which was a... a Way in front in the mix, aren't they? Well, they're actually doing, they're doing like a Pete Best beat. You know, they're playing what the snare would play, but the snare's not, you know, the, the hand claps are actually providing the backbeat on that, it yeah. seems, which is yeah. quite unusual. Yeah. <laughs> and it, 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 it's, it's like the like the Motown tambourine. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the tambourine's always twice as loud as all the other instruments on yeah, the track. Yeah, but it was <clears throat> that uh, snare drum sound and the tom sound they had on Motown. Yes. Uh, yeah. Fantastic sounding kit, you know, and just just the same on every track, wasn't yeah, no, it? Absolutely, like the perfect yeah. formula. It's it's funny, you know, when last time <coughs> last time we had a chat, we we listened to some of those wonderful demos. The hand claps were already there, weren't they, as an element? Uh, yeah, one or two. I have to say, having listened to that, some of them I'm not on because it was probably prior to me being invited down to put drums on. Yeah. And there's one track there, I think it's somebody trying to play drums. It's certainly not me. I don't know who <laughs> that right. is, but it's very strange. It's, I know it's not me playing. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah that's, it, was, it was good fun doing these demos. I mean, as I said before, I was gobsmacked how many songs they had, and uh, they were sort of just lying there and nothing being done about them. And it was, I su suggested, you know, going down to London. Mm. And, uh, you know, kicked off from there. But, uh, yeah, Craig Hall was a special place, really. Absolutely. Uh, I was reading that they had the, the very first um, Neve mixing desk installed of its type in the UK. It wow. Seemed, it's, it seems like Craig Hall was really at the forefront of technology. I think it was just a 16-track when we were in there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Billy Lyle was the engineer, Yes. Uh, so he was, he was in twiddling the knobs and stuff. But, uh, well, yeah, Neve Dest. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It, 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 it's really interesting, this, and, and it, was, it was an angle that I, I, was, I couldn't resist exploring, Stuart. Um, the fact that, that Billy's on the knobs, um, yep. that you're in a studio outside London, which has got... Uh, let's face it, you know, technologically is is comparing with studios in London. This kind of remote outpost of brilliance. There are so many parallels, aren't there, between Pilot and 10CC. Um, the, the, the vocal sound, the drum sound, the uh, the harmonised guitars. Yes. Did you, do you see Pilot and 10CC <coughs> as these kind of parallel... Entities were you influenced by by each other? Do you think? I don't think so. It just what happened happened. Really, uh, I know David, who was the main songwriter. He was heavily influenced by the Beatles, and who wouldn't be? Mm. I mean, his hero was Paul McCartney. Uh, so he maybe wrote a bit in that ilk, 
But, uh, you know, we were categorised a little pop band. I suppose we set out as being that because the songs lent themselves to being a little pop band. But the music of the band was a bit more advanced uh, than, yes. than that. I was, uh, as I say, a big fan of 10CC and for the vocal because I, my uh, thing is vocal harmonies. I just love them, you know, mm -hmm. the, the human voice and the blends that yeah. can be achieved. I mean, uh, the Queen are a classic example of multi-layering as uh, uh, Roy Thomas Baker did at the outset with them. It's like a huge choir, you know. Not absolutely. Very unusual for, for rock and roll to have that, that sound. Yes. Almost a classical background, which Freddie, of course, I think was heavily into and perhaps would have, had he survived, maybe written an opera or something, I would imagine. No, completely, com completely. And then the Beach Boys must have been an influence on oh, you, Stuart, in terms huge, of the harmonies. Huge, huge, yeah. I remember Chris Rainbow. Uh, oh, yes. mentioned him before. Wonderful singer. Yeah, yeah he went. He actually met um, Brian Wilson <clears throat> at his house in LA. He said he was a very quiet chap. But, uh, <laughs> he said it was frustrating because he didn't have time to speak to him. People kept butting in or something was going on. And uh, he never never did ask, get the questions he wanted to ask. But oh. he said he was, he was kind of remote. Uh, this was... Yes, didn't he live on the Orkneys or something? Uh, I'm, I'm talking about Brian Wilson. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, very, <laughs> very remote. <laughs> no, he was, no uh, Chris was from the Isle of Skye. Yes. Uh, and, uh, as you say, a super voice. And he'd, he did uh, all the original jingles for Capital Radio in London. Yes, that's right. Uh, some and, of them, and, some of them are on the the CD version of looking, looking. Is it looking over my shoulder? His the album with oh, Dear Brian on it. Wonderful, wonderful record. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Dan sets on there as well. It's lovely. And I'm sure that there are some, there are some capital uh, jingles on that on that reissue. Because yeah. I remember it's going way back. But I remember some very sort of Beach Boy esque type uh, jingles that he did for Capital. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Greatly missed, super fella. Stuart, can you tell us? Uh, I mean, we're around the time here, aren't we? Where you'd be crossing paths with 10cc. Can you tell us how you, you came into their orbit? Uh, well, uh, Pilot sort of broke up. I, I left the band. Uh, there was a bit just disagreements, whatever, and I thought, I've had enough now. So mm -hmm. anyway, um, I was doing a lot of session work in London, which uh, was good, scary, but, you know, <laughs> get the move from the door. Uh, <laughs> and it wasn't, it was... One day, just uh, it was a music uh, newspaper in those days. That was disco melody maker, but uh, it announced that both Kevin and uh, Law were leaving 10CC, uh, and I thought, oh God, because I was a real fan of 10CC. Who wouldn't be? Tremendous yes. songwriting and four really talented guys and four lead vocalists. Mm -hmm. I mean, tremendous vocal power there. Yes. Uh, and it said the Eric and Graham were going to continue. So I somehow found their office and uh, just put my name forward. Never thinking I'd ever hear 
from them. <coughs> Pardon me. At that time, they had not only Strawberries North, Strawberry Studios North and Stockport, but they had Strawberry South in Dorking, mm. in Surrey, which was an old convert, converted cinema. Uh, and a lot of good tracks were recorded there, um, yes. not just 10cc. Uh, so I went down there to the audition because I was living in uh, I was living in a Surrey area anyway at the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, just literally started playing, just jammed with them. And uh, 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 to my amazement, I got the gig. So it was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And were you jamming yeah. with, with, with Paul in the room at the same time? Were you kind of trading I don't off? Know if Paul, I don't know if Paul was there. I think he, I think he was, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, I think we did play together, yeah. Uh, Paul's a really fine player. Yeah. I mean, you know, solid as a rock. Uh, yeah. Uh, just playing with uh, Eric and Graham, uh, really, because uh, they were just the three piece that did Deceptive Bands. That's that's the the album they did at Dorking. Yes, mm. and subsequent albums we did there. Some stuff we did up in Stockport, uh, but yeah, essentially it was down in in, in Dorking. That, that's how it came about, and uh, yeah. the then there was Tony O'Malley on keyboards joining, and Tony's still going. I've just seen a bit of his stuff. He's still looking great, great, still playing, and uh, <clears throat> still out there. And uh, Rick Fenn, Fennage from Australia, <laughs> loving Australia now. Um, so they sat us down and they played the Deceptive Benz album on the studio playback. And we were just sort of. Every track was a gem to me. It was just fantastic. Yes. Very clever writing, very clever lyrics, you know. There was always tongue-in-cheek with 10cc and a lot of the lyrics. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it was just just wonderful. Absolutely. And, and am I right in thinking that you were out on tour? <clears throat> you were out on tour very, very soon after that, weren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in instantly we did um, a British tour. We were doing sort of four nights in Manchester, four nights at... Hammersmith Odeon, which is now the Apollo, Manchester, and all the major towns in, in the UK, around Europe, then through uh, Canada, USA, Japan, Australia, mm. and then back up and around Europe again. It was, it was just hectic, but great. Yes, and, and a rollicking live album uh, to, to prove it as well. Yeah, that was yeah, that was at, uh, at Hammersmith. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that fascinates me, Stuart, is how you and Paul kind of apportioned your your drum and percussion roles, um, yeah. both live and in the studio. Can you give us a snapshot of of how your role would differ from Paul's on stage? Mm. Would you well, kind of take it in turns to play the in, kit? Well, kind of. Yeah, kind of. Initially, we're both on on kit and. Uh, you know, he would play uh, a certain pattern. I'd do maybe a half-time feel on it, uh, just to change it around a bit. And and then percussion. Uh, sometimes it was easier for me playing percussion and doing vocals, um, or playing percussion. Uh, 
but normally I'd be on kit singing as well, just doing BBs. Uh, but Paul was the main sort of man on the kit. He had done the, the album. So, you know, we just swapped about on various tracks at uh, what suited us. I mean, I was just open to any suggestion. <laughs> yeah, you, want to, you want to play on it? Go ahead. Let, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> there, there was no sort of competition. I want to play on this and you want to play on that. It was just very... Very open, you know. Yeah, absolutely, and th- th- that comes across because um, Paul and I, being massive geeks, as you've as you've probably uh, gleaned by now, uh, we're fascinated looking through the <coughs> uh, the album credits. Things like a bloody Taurus, is of course exactly like um, you know we 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 love kind of pouring over these sort of details. I've got bloody yes. bloody Taurus and look here uh, yes. in my hands, and um. I, this might be a kind of a, a fake observation, but it seemed to me, looking at the credits on those albums, Stuart, is that you you seem to play a lot of the kit on the Bloody Taurus album, and yet on Look Here, your role seemed to be more about the percussion and, and backing vocals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just the way it went. There was no sort of, uh, you're doing this and I'm doing that. As I say, we just... Paul would just get on the kit and play, or I would do it to whatever, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Paul, Paul told us, you may know this story, but because um, you, you, you play the kit on um, Dreadlock Holiday, of course, he told us that he was late getting back down to Strawberry South because he was working with Brian and Michael, I think, on the Isle of Man, touring or playing a live gig or something. And so by the time he got down to Dorking, you'd already put the, the track down for for Dreadlock Holiday, which I think was the first thing you recorded for Bloody Taurus. Is that, is that accurate? <laughs> Well, you've just jogged my memory. I forgot about that. Yes, I was <laughs> getting down there. I'm not sure actually which was the first track, but uh, that was that was interesting one to do. That was, I mean, that was based on holidays by you know with Eric and Graham and uh, Justin Hayward of uh, Moody Blues. Yes, uh, yeah. Their experiences yeah. in in Jamaica and the Caribbean, and yeah. they just people would say something and they just. Ooh, Write it down. It was yeah. used in, in in the song. Did, that, that, the, that was that was their, their number one. That was their, their first number one after the uh, you know I'm, I'm not in love. Absolutely, of course. Did I mean uh, had you played reggae before? I suspect you had. You sound so comfortable with the with the with the genre. Was that? Yeah, kind of messed about with it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, well, it certainly sounded great on the record, so there was it being too modest saying messing about. I think you nailed it. Bloody Tourist strikes us as a real a coming together of this brand new version of 10cc where um, the six of you are, are kind of fully fledged members. Uh, it must have been a, a great feeling at that time, Stuart, to uh, oh. to be a, a new part of a new 10cc. Oh, that was a huge thrill for me. I was a, a fan of the band, uh, you know, since the concept of it. Uh, just every track they did was wonderful and very cleverly written, mm. very cleverly recorded. Uh, just four immensely talented guys. Uh, I mean, the big thrill was playing live, and you're going out with a band where every song you're doing is a hit. Yeah. 
you've got them in the palm of your hand, certainly in Europe <laughs> and the U- UK, you know. And there's there's no buzz like it, you know, when you finish and doing your encore and you come out and the place is roaring. I remember the four nights up in Manchester, I don't know if it was the first tour or one of the tours, we'd done four nights. And the dressing rooms in Manchester Apollo are way up in the gods, a long way from the stage. And we had we had um, we'd finished, we'd finished, we'd done our encore and the promoter, uh, Danny Batesh, came up uh, and said, the, the house lights are up, the crew are going to take the, the gear down, nobody's left. Nobody's <laughs> left. He said, I've never, he said, in all my years, because he started out at the same time as Brian Epstein, Danny. Yeah. Uh, he said, I've never seen a band or any act where the crowd have done this ever in all these decades of uh, musical, uh, you know, promoting so we went down. I think all we did was we just did Johnny Be Good by, <laughs> by uh, Chuck Berry. Wow! Uh, yeah, oh, fantastic. Was, and we could we could hear in the distance this roar. And we thought that can't be the crowd. They're going to be gone by now. <laughs> <laughs> so we came out, got up, smacked. Nobody had left. It was incredible. How amazing! That's, that, that really is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Playing wall-to-wall hits, but sadly, one of those tunes that wasn't a hit, Stuart, we we firmly believe should have been. Um, We've had fun lately attempting to play a a, a tune that you co-wrote. We're doing a a gig in June, 50cc it's called, Tribute Gig. And my personal favourite of all the ones we've had a crack at is your co-write and your lead vocal. Tell us about Reds in my bed. There's a Batman who offers a change of scene. Says he'll guarantee my sheet will be clean when I get on the outside. That came about. <clears throat> it's quite poignant now because of the Ukrainian thing going on. Absolutely. Uh, it was when you know, Eastern Europe, the, the wall existed, uh, dividing east to west. And I watched a documentary <clears throat> on TV at the lengths people would go to escape the regime in the East, even somebody moulding themselves into the wing of a car. It's actually footage of this guy being moulded in. And, um, you know, the extremes would go to. And it just touched me, and I thought, God, it's... it's," And the same thing goes on now, sadly, you know, the depression of people uh, around the world. And it just struck me, and I just went to Eric, and we just... Got it, you know, put it together somehow, and uh, I was lumber for doing the, the the vocal on it, and uh, <laughs> it was actually Paul Gambaccini, bless him. He he suggests it should be a single in the USA, oh. and it was released as a single. And um, on the tour there, <clears throat> I was out of my comfort zone, out front with a guitar slung around my neck, trying to sing and play this thing. Um, we did a video actually in Hollywood. Which I hope is no, it's not. We've, we've. I'm afraid we've uncovered it, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's amusing. Put it that way. Sadly, it didn't. Uh, it didn't happen. Um, so I was kind of reprieved and having to go out in front every night 
from my right. safety zone behind the drum kit uh, and, and sing this song. It's, it's a great uh, song, it, though. It, it's, we, it's an absolute cracker. It's grown on me over the years, actually. And uh, I, I've got Paul to thank for that. Having a go at playing it has given me a, a totally new appreciation. If nothing else, there's something strange and, and wonderful about some of the polyrhythms going on, especially in the sort of pre-chorus, where yeah. you, you seem to be playing against yourself. Um, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd love to yeah. hear more about your thinking there, yeah. Stuart. I think I think Paul did that. Just put, put a thing across it um, from memory. Yeah. Okay. You've got reds in your beds. There's a man looking over your shoulder. But don't you give them your mind? It's too late when you find that it's over. Yeah. Reds yeah, in my bed, offbeat stuff. Yeah. 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 How did it come about musically? Who wrote the chords and the melody? And tell us how it was how it, how it was apportioned out between you and Eric, if you can. Uh, well, I don't really play guitar or, or piano. Got a hand like a bunch of bananas, really. Um, <laughs> but uh, just singing the melody line and uh, just going through chords with with Eric. And he would suggest something, and I would say, yeah, that would be good, but maybe we could do this here and change that to that. Just uh, arranging it and uh, just trying to construct the song. I mean, Eric, bless him, was wonderful uh, in his guidance on it all. Yes. Wow. It speaks very highly of Eric and Graham, that how willing they were to let the other four right into the fold and part of the writing process. It's mm-hmm. great, isn't it? Yeah, they were just those lovely guys, you know. Lovely guys, open to all sorts of suggestions, and it was you say it was a good unit. It was you know, a good six-piece unit. Everybody got along really well. Yeah, Paul, Paul told us it was just the biggest laugh. It is. It was such fun we had. It's just <laughs> crazy. Yeah, good fun. Yeah, and that that helps immensely. I mean, there's there can't be anything worse than being on tour and there's a bit of atmosphere going on. You know, but, uh, it was it was good fun. It was just terrific. You know. We all got along really well. Mm, fantastic. <laughs> was was Reds your only recorded lead vocal, Stuart? Yes. And, and if so, yes. why? You know, it's a cracking vocal. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm just quite happy to be in the background, really. Yeah. Never never want to be at the front and sort of, here I am. You know, just... <laughs> And Quite happy to play kit and do backing vocals and sure, whatever. Sure, and and your your writing <laughs> credits, it would seem. Paul's done some research here, which I I I, I guess you're going to be sharing with us, Paul. Your writing uh, well, cre- your writing credits are quite few and far between as well. Uh, it seems. Yes, I'm a, I'm a sort of I'm a, I'm in the PRS, Stuart. So I just had a look, and there's. Uh, I mean, it's it's a small but perfectly formed discography. There's Reds in my bed, and there's there's just two other two other songs I could find here. I'm in love again, and you even took my soul, which uh, I I don't know whether either of those were released. Do you even recall them? <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, I, I'm in love again. Possibly not. I I'm in love again was written by yourself and John McNairn, who I think. Who you did some recordings with David as well, I think. Um... Yeah, we, the three of us. Yeah, John. John was a school teacher in Edinburgh, and uh, he was a very okay. talented writer. And uh, we did demos, I think, down in Craig Hall Studios, maybe oh, okay. uh, some other studios. Um, and I don't think anything saw the light of day, but some of the songs were very, very good. 
Right, that, that, that must, as that it must happened be. in those days, you know, some things never saw the light of day, sadly. Mm. Of, of course, of course. So that must be where that, that came from. Trying to get the high notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's some very there's some very high notes. So that is that is you doing the high. Uh, uh, I don't like your philosophy up on the full yeah. set. So that's that's your lead, yeah. isn't? It? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, really that's high. way beyond my range. Yeah, uh, we, we've trans we've transposed it down, haven't we? From <laughs> F from F to D, if that makes you feel any better, because we couldn't we couldn't get up there. It's so low. <laughs> it's so so low, and yet our drummer's voice sounds really high. So yeah, how, yeah. how you got those notes in the first place is yeah. There's always a scary prospect going out front and seeing it. And, <laughs> and the, the sort of high note is approaching, you think, come on. <laughs> uh, one, of, one of the strangest things is having laterally, having the mic, you know, yes. here on the earpiece. So... Um, you can't exactly stand there and clear your throat. So you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Matt, 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 our drummer, has one of those kind of Madonna headset type uh, things. And uh, it's terrific, but you're right. He can't exactly kind of adjust his, his mic no. technique. Yes. Yeah. So he's I, I always never, really loud. Yeah, I wasn't comfortable with that at all, really. But mm. yeah. um, out front, it obviously worked. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, probably because the reason that we did it because on the percussion uh, rostrum, I was dashing about, uh, and although I had maybe two mics set up, I'd be sort of trying to play something, you know, and the mic would be not in the area. Yeah, you'd have to have maybe four mics, which is ridiculous. So yeah, hence yeah. having this, so I can move about and play pads and play congas, or whatever was yeah. required uh but again very strange <laughs> no absolutely it's funny we we had a, a lovely chat earlier on today actually Stuart, with ian hornell who, who you know is oh, yes. singing lead vocal yeah. with graham's yeah, yeah. band at the moment and he was yeah, saying exactly the same thing that he's like literally an octopus diving from electric piano over to percussion pick up his guitar yes. stick the guitar behind his back so yes. that it's ready for when he has to yeah. play guitar yeah, I mean, the choreography of it all, uh, when you're doubling up, you've you got to be on the ball. And you're, oh, really? <laughs> uh, jump behind the kit. Absolutely. Used, to, used to be like ships in the night, uh, Paul and I, him diving off the kit, me going on the kit, on percussion and back again. Really? <clears throat> yeah, in, in the early days, we swapped two kits up most of the time, and then the percussion riser in the middle used okay. to just leap about to get to get A to B. With Ships in the Night, you, you did that very kind of long extended bluesy version of it, didn't you? Very, yeah. Very different from the version on, on the debut album. Yeah, that was the, the live album. Was I think the only time we ever played that? I don't think we did. We didn't do it too many times on the subsequent tours. I don't yes. recall. 
I guess early that was sort of early on. The new band didn't actually have that much material. I mean, you uh, that that was pre Bloody Taurus, wasn't it? So you had you had Deceptive Bends, and then I guess Eric and Graham wanted to go back and feature a couple of their own songs that they'd written, and that was one of them, I suppose. So they went. Yeah, yeah, but it was, it was quite a full program actually, even at that time. I mean, there was tremendous. Uh, library to, to call upon wasn't there so oh, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was just it's a thrill for me to go to play these songs i've always <laughs> been a like you guys i've always been a 10cc fan and when <laughs> the gig came up and i got it, it was like hey <laughs> <laughs> Tell us if you can, and um, how Eric's very serious accident affected Ten CC. It seemed to really stop the momentum of the band in, in early '79. Was it a, was it a difficult time? Very much so. Very much so. I mean, <clears throat> it was very serious. He almost lost his life. And in fact, the, all the gear was on the way to Japan and Australia mm-hmm. by ship, and they had, they had to turn it round. Um, wow. Yeah, it was. <laughs> It was. He was very lucky, actually, to be found at the time. Uh, he uh, driving on on the road back to his house. Well, the story I, I heard was uh, he'd got to the house with his wife, having been out, and um, it was a very cold night. And he realised he'd left the keys of the house at the recording studio in Dorking, which was about five miles away. Or so, and it was on the way back that the, he lost control and went into the woods. Mm. And luckily a police car uh, saw the taillights and uh, rescued him. But uh, it was he was in a bad way. And thank God he recovered yeah, uh, yeah. from it. But that, it just killed the momentum completely. Uh, he had to convalesce for quite a, some time. And uh, that momentum, I think, it was never to be seen again, never to happen, really. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, shame, but uh, at least he he didn't uh, he didn't perish in the accident. Yes, yes. No, we're, no, we're... absolutely, and 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 thank goodness. Um, yeah, it it seemed to affect the the mood of all the subsequent albums after that, Stuart. They're a very different beast, yeah. aren't they? Those eighties albums. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yes, didn't have the same sort of spark to it somehow, which is quite sad. Some good songs. Yes, absolutely. And, and musically, never, musically, there's yeah. some wonderful playing going oh, on. Lovely. Oh, yeah. Just never, it never, never took off, really, uh, unfortunately. So, you know, the success was never repeated, the new lineup had in the first sort of couple of years, because it was yeah. really full on. Um, I mean, it was sort of 18 month program. You would, uh, Eric and Graham would write. Uh, you'd record the album and then you'd go on tour to promote it. Yes. And for the time you did all that, it was a year, 18 months. It was a, another cycle of coming back, doing another album, blah, blah, blah. And off you go again mm-hmm. to the big circus. Uh, <laughs> and that, that was it when, when the accident occurred. that it just stopped it, really. Yes, and I suppose, I suppose Graham's Animal Olympics project was the only kind of thing that filled that gap, yep. was it? Yeah. And, and you yep. played on that, I believe. I uh, just sang, I think. I think you just sang backing vocals on it. Now that we made it, we made it. 
Did I? Our number going down. So that was in Dorking as well. Yeah. yeah. Essentially, it was it was uh, Paul. Uh, can't remember what I was doing at that time. But yeah, I probably had a little bit of input on it. Very clever again. Uh, uh, Graham's writing, you know, <laughs> doing. He's oh, a mentally talented guy. Yes. Oh, we we love that album. It's all we always try and kind of push it forward because again, it didn't. I mean, due to a bizarre set of circumstances, which culminated in um, involving the Russians, uh, the U- wasn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, and culminated in the U.S. boycotting the 1980 Olympics. Yeah. It never got the uh, sort of exposure that it would have, uh, ironically, and so it kind of never really, it never got out there as it would have. But brilliant, brilliant record, yes. and brilliant concepts. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, very clever fella, and he can, <laughs> he can, he can just turn his hand to any sort of. Uh, Writing, music, writing of music, you know. Uh, he's give, he's, if he's given a task to do, he'll just grab it and get on with it. And it's suddenly at the, at the end, there's this fantastic piece of music. You think, oh, <laughs> God, how did he think that up? You yeah. know? <laughs> and he's been doing it for a long time. Yes, indeed. Oh, for, for sure, the 60s, yeah. you know? And, and, and the more we... The more we, we scratch at this, Stuart, and, and we've been scratching at this for, oh, God, the best part of 100 episodes, would you believe? And we've spoken to Graham loads, but we've spoken yeah. to a lot of people who've worked with him. And, of course, they all they all sing Graham's praises in, in for so many different reasons. And he's done pop, country, folk, rock. He's done, yeah. uh, he's done disco, you know, literally yeah. every... Jazz, every genre, yep. Um, yep. and he truly has to be one of the great unsung pop musicians and songwriters, doesn't he? I totally agree. Very underrated, very underrated indeed. Tremendous talent, as you say. He can just put his hand to anything musically. Yes, and uh, he's a fine guitarist, wonderful rhythm guitar player. I mean, he's. Very pure. Every chord he plays, you'll never hear any fret buzz or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's infuriating, isn't it? On, everything, yeah. Every yeah. Chord is spot on. And his his uh, thumb seems to be this uh, this sixth digit, yeah. you know, that can perform <laughs> perform magic. You know, I, I'm yeah. incredibly envious. Um, and it it always strikes me it's a sh- it's a shame listening to albums like Look Here, um, and and what came later. We don't hear the magic of Graham's writing and the magic of, of Eric's writing and production mesh in the same way anymore, do yeah. we? What, no. what can you tell us about the, the mood in the studio at that time, Stuart? Was it palpably different once Eric had come back? Yeah, yeah, I suppose it was. I think there was a bit... Uh, I wouldn't use the word forced, but it was... You know, it didn't have just as a, it didn't have, didn't have the same spark to it. Um, but still, there were songs there, but it just wasn't the same impetus and uh, atmosphere that there had been before. Yes, uh, sadly. Mm. But uh, you know, one or two songs stand out, and uh, sadly, they, they never saw the light of day that they should have. Sure. Uh, Any in particular that you remember that you think are unsung? Well, I think. <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of it was going down sort of the romantic road, trying to not trying to find another and not in love, but more sort of slow tempo romantic songs, and all of them had their their moment, but uh, the, they didn't. Their singles didn't happen. So, uh, uh, 
Uh, don't ask me to, to name someone because <laughs> brain boxes. No, that, that's okay. That's okay. You did. You did. Um, uh, after you sort of left the band, you came back and you, you did play on. Uh, uh, was it Food for Thought, the single you played on? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was kind of uh, reggae-ish as well. Yeah, that yeah, was it was, at, wasn't it? That was at uh, Strawberry North. Yeah. Ah, I was going to ask. Yeah. Um, the program in the sixties has just come back to me. Thank you, Lucky right. Stars. Okay, ah, great. Right. That Beatles thing. There yeah, you go. Yeah. That was working all the way through. Yeah, then. The, old, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the brain, yeah. the brain works in a strange way, doesn't it? it I, I often it, wake in the middle of the night. With when it's plugged in, it's all right. Sure. <laughs> so, Stuart, you didn't play on the Ten Out of Ten album, I don't think. Is that right? I think no, that's correct. Yeah. yeah, very, very little, if, if yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. What, I was, what projects were you working on around sort of eighty one, eighty two? Uh, Camel, am I well, right? Camel, Camel was uh, eighty two, touring all over the place with them. That was interesting. It's quite funny because when I was doing the tour with Camel, we played a bull ring open air gig in Barcelona. Ah. And we we were support to Jethro Tull. Mm-hmm. Guess who was on drums in Jethro Tull? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, he's, he so, told he told us about these adventures and you kind of kind of swapped yeah. roles, didn't you, you and Paul? Yeah, yeah, crossed over. And uh it was quite a few years later, actually, that um, Jethro Tell's office phoned up, uh, wanted me to come and audition. And I thought, my God. Um, <laughs> uh, they, <laughs> the Sadie and Anderson walked in the office one day and he said, 1982, Barcelona, uh, Camel, find the drummer. <laughs> 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 they said, we're taking ages to find you. I said, oh, well, there you go. Anyway, at that time, I was uh, beginning to be involved with um, uh, with the Just Hotel thing uh, in theatre in the West End. That's another story. Uh, uh, but going back a bit to the 10CC days, um, there was a time when uh, the 10CC for me had finished and um, <clears throat> I was just looking for a session when I went down to Strawberry south and they had this manager lady there and just introduced myself i'm just up the road <laughs> many sessions every you know mm. and um, out of the studio came uh, cliff richard's manager and he went hello Stuart. I went, oh, how are you doing david and uh, i said how's cliff doing he said he's in he's in recording at the moment i went, oh. he said can i have a word so they they said whoever was on kit um they wanted to change, so uh-huh. they asked, I was straight into the session. Wow. <laughs> so what? I did a, an album with Cliff and a, a, a gospel tour with him, which is huge. I mean, the guy is immense, as you know, immensely popular. But yeah. the gospel tour we did, you have uh, from babies up to grannies in wheelchairs coming to see him. Every show sells out. Every show, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Twinkle, twinkle, little 
didn't realise you'd played with Cliff. It's, that yeah. must have escaped the disc. Uh, disc it's not yeah. on Discogs, that. Um, so you did record as well. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Silver Collection, I think it's called, the album. Oh, yes. Like ah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I had no idea. Um, yeah. we, we also wanted to mention some recording you did uh, from the yeah. mid-70s onwards. Yeah. Uh, sorry that, that this copy of Tales of Mystery and Imagination by it, Alan Parsons' it, project. Sorry it's so dog-eared, Stuart. But it looks well-loved. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but w- what a terrific record. And I'm, I'm, I'm a, yeah. a, a big fan, particularly at the early stuff of Alan Parsons' projects. What, what can yes. you tell us about those sessions? It must have been a lot of fun and a challenge. Yes, it was it was very good. I mean, Eric is a co-writer, and he sang on a few tracks. Sadly, he passed away in 06. Uh, you know, another one to go to soon. Yes. Uh, we went uh, party to what this was about. We were just given a track to record, and off we went. And eventually, we sort of sussed what it might be, and then he confirmed that it was the works of Edgar Allan Poe and what have you. I was doing stuff I've never done before, uh, tune percussion, bells, uh, timpani, which was <laughs> great fun. Not bad. You just order these things in and suddenly you've three timpanis to play. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> but yeah, very clever guys, the way they constructed things. We, we essentially did uh, all the backing tracks, some backing vocals, all the percussion. And then um, Andrew Powell would orchestrate a huge orchestra and maybe, you know, a chorale of 60-odd people. So it became huge production. Uh, And we were in Studio 2 for all of that. So I've done four albums in in Abbey Road. Uh, The second album, the pilot second album, was in Studio 3. Oh, okay. The smaller one. The smaller one, the one near the front door. Right, yeah. The story behind that as well. Um, There's a guy called Chris Blair used to work there. He was a tape op, but essentially his job was cutting the master disc from the master tape, the quarter-inch finished product. Right. So from tape to master disc, and he worked up in the gods uh, in uh, in Abbey Road. And I'm setting my kit up to start uh, our second album as pilot in Studio 3, and I look in (coughs) the control room window, and there's a load of people in there. That was going on. And Chris Blair's going, come in, come in, come in. So on the, the tape, uh, he said, listen to this. This is Queen's new single, Playback on uh, Studio Playback, Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I mean, you, you couldn't hear it in a better no. situation. Wow, no. wow. And so... We were the first people, other than Queen, to, to hear that before it was even cut onto a disc. Unbelievable. I remember, I remember my words when it faded out. I said, well, how do you follow that? Should we just go home? Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, but I, I will say, Stuart, I, I read there was some sort of friendly competition in 75 because you had yourselves, Queen, and uh, Steve Harley, Cockney Rebel, all EMI acts. Yes, uh, uh, jostling for the first number one, but you got there first for January. You, yeah. you got that. You, you beat we Freddie, did. so well done. Yeah, Freddie was a bit miffed apparently at that. <laughs> Bless him. 
Yeah. And uh, in fact, we should have been number one for four weeks because on the sales figures, we actually sold more on the fourth week than uh, Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel. Oh. They somehow sneaked in with the uh, come up and see me. Oh, so they replaced you at number one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. And ironically, uh, here's all the connections coming up now. Uh, Duncan Mackay, yeah. who was the keyboard player with Cockney Rebel, became the keyboard player with 10CC. Yes. Right. Um, other connections through Cliff Richard, a guy called Pete Howarth, singer, one of yes. Chris Back and vocalists, a great singer in his own right. Now the singer with the Hollies. Um, and as Custer's work with uh, Rick Fenn. Yeah, and uh, Rick Fenn, uh, Alan Park, a keyboard player who was Cliff Richard's MD. Uh, we had a band called The Thermones. <laughs> and it was Rick <laughs> Fenn, myself, uh, Alan Park, uh, Pete Howarth, uh, guest bass players, guest keyboard players. Um, and we just went and did gigs. No rehearsal, straight in. So <laughs> it was good, good fun. Yeah, the Pheromones. Uh, they're still going in Australia, apparently. Mr. Fennage uh, has, uh, and Alan Parts living out there as well. So he's oh, okay. part of that game. Okay. So, uh, so they probably make a wonderful sound. I bet. You don't have a, a live theremin player in the band, do you, by any chance? Mm, no. But it's a great no, name. It's a great name. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, they, we got one or two gigs. Quite good fun again. Good fun. Yeah, and absolutely. just flying the suit your pants. Uh, <laughs> I remember <laughs> playing one gig and we had a guest keyboard player in, I uh, can't remember his name, and we're going to do Brown Sugar. And he said, give, give me a cowbell, you know, the start of ding, ding, yeah. ding, 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 ding. And I said, you know, he said, I'm, uh, I'm Mick Jagger's keyboard player. And I said, oh, there you are. <laughs> 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 Fantastic. What um what projects are you working on at the moment, Stuart? Are you still busy behind I, the kit? Not at all, sir. I am retired completely. Really? I my last gig was in 2014 uh, with Pilot and an outdoor gig in Edinburgh. And that was it. I am um, sadly have inherited the family heirloom of arthritis in my hands. Oh. Um, so I don't I don't know how long I could hold sticks for. I can hold a golf club and raise a glass of wine. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, two out of three is not bad. <laughs> and I'm, yeah. There you go. <laughs> now, I mean, to be honest, out here, gigs for drummers are few and far between. It's mostly got karaoke, two people with strumming a guitar sort of thing. Yeah, You'd right. have to travel to do a gig. Uh, gigs here are very poorly paid. So the idea of lugging a kit into some place to start at 11 at night and finish it four in the morning playing Johnny Be Good for 50 euros is not my idea of fun anymore. No. Understood, understood. Whereabouts in Spain are you? Uh, I'm on the Costa Blanca. Um, I'm at the south end of a town called Torrevieja, which is okay. south of Alicante. Okay, okay. The, so the Med's just down the road. Um, no, it sounds, sounds blissful, yeah, blissful. Well, it, it would be. We've actually experienced, would you believe, the worst weather in 80, 80 years here. Wow. I prolonged, it's been like back in Britain, it's cold, windy, high winds, horizontal rain. No. Yeah, I, I, I do know that because my, my son's just come back from Spain with his girlfriend, staying with her grandparents, I think. And yeah, he was moaning that it was raining all the time. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. I mean, they, they've uh, somebody said the other day, the... Was it the farmers have, have saved about 18 million uh, euros in not watering, irrigating their, their crops? Good grief. 
We always ask our guests, are they familiar with the Godly and Cream album Consequences? That's because that's how we started our podcast and kind of expanded. Uh, did, did you... Did, did you hear that when it came out in like 77 uh, or, or did Eric and Graham not allow you to listen to it? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. I know it was a three album, wasn't yes. it? Three yes, album? that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was based on the elements. Yes. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I heard they were sort of throwing buckets of water at walls and stuff. And yeah, they were doing some weird yeah, stuff. <laughs> yeah. I didn't, I, I didn't, I had minuscule amounts and, um, I thought it was very bizarre, uh, <laughs> very different, but you know, they're again two very creative guys. Uh, oh, they yeah. wanted to go and do their own thing. Uh, yes, exactly. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think their saving grace was doing the videos. To be honest. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Certainly commercially. Did, did you ever meet? Yeah. Uh, did you meet Kevin and Law? Once. Would you believe it? Once. There's our studio in Leatherhead. Mm. Um, Surrey. Surrey Sound was it? But, yes. And the guy who ran that... Nigel. Um, Nigel Gray. Ah, there you are. What a man you are, yes. <laughs> and he was, uh, I think, uh, Priest did a lot of their stuff there, or he was helping yes. them in the early days. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I was at a session in there, setting up the kit, and in the control room was uh, Kevin and Lob. Ah. And they were mixing a track. And they said, and they played it to me, and they said, can you guess who this is? And it was a disco track. And I went on and on, and I think... No idea. I said, I give up. And they said, Herb Alpit. Wow. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't even hear a trumpet on it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, are you, are you kidding? They said, no, it's a Herb Alpit track. Wow. But I always remember that. It's the only time I met them. Good, good buzzy guys to be with as well. Yeah. For, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of connections as well uh, with me, with uh, transitioning, transitioning from rock and roll to doing theatre. Um the keyboard player with um, Cliff Richard, Alan Park, uh, did the first musical I did, which was written by Rick Fenn and Pete Howarth. Ah. It was written for it was written for Bill Kenwright, who was a well, he's the chairman of Everton Football Club, but he's also been involved in theatre for years, musical theatre. Rick was always very guarded about this. I said, come on, let me hear what you've been doing. Let me hear. Eventually, let me hear it. And I was really taken aback. It was very good, very cleverly constructed thing. It was all based on the story of Robin Hood. Yes. Uh, anyway, we put a very good band together. And one of the guys in that band was Keith Heyman, who uh, goes out with 10CC and oh. is Cliff Richards, new musical director. Wow. Right. The, con the connections are mad, aren't they? Uh, yeah. Rick um, was very, very kindly shared the Robin Sherwood stories with us as well. Some great songs. Oh, fabulous. Involved, were you involved with his Androcles and the Lion project as well? That was no. another mu musical no. that he wrote. Yeah, no, I didn't do that. Right. I didn't do that. But um, having done Robin Prince of Sherwood, uh, I mean, um, sadly, the, the show was a bit slated by the, the uh, mm. critics. But the one good line I remember in the West End, uh, somebody wrote, the best pit band in the West End, I thought, yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> must be right. I'll take so that. So you've got a I'll good review. That, yeah. 
it was one of those jobs where I needed about five pairs of hands and a percussionist <laughs> uh, uh, trying to do everything. But yeah. It was good fun. It was good fun to play. It was a bit of a roast. I mean, I remember Adam Park at the, after the opening night, uh, when the last note died, he went, God, he said, that's the hardest thing I've had to play. <laughs> He's classic, classically trained guy, superb player, Adam Park. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was, it was good. We had three keyboard players um, and uh, uh, a guy on guitar doubling on bass. So it was it was good, good band. It was you to pay attention. <laughs> Absolutely, because yeah. um, uh, Rick Fenn, I mean, he, we know him as a guitarist, don't we? But uh, it was yeah. a revelation to find out what a brilliant keyboard player he is. Yeah, well, he's, he's another talented fellow. He did lots of, uh, we worked with Mike Oldfield and he's worked with loads of people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Doing a lot of library music as well. Very creative. Yeah. Uh, his own studio in his place in London. But again, he's he's in Australia. Yeah. Uh, been there for many years. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, free at last to join uh, the, the 10CC boys on tour after yes. a, long, a long wait. Oh, I know. I know. It's kind of. <laughs> Killed everything off a bit, isn't it? Yeah, but it has thank really. goodness, it's all, it's all coming back, it's all coming together. All right, so this is something that was sent to us by uh, our friend Anthony, 1978, in Canada, of all places. The brain now leaving platform one is yours. Please fasten your safety belt and extinguish all lighted substances. Our hostesses will be passing amongst you throughout the trip to fondle your doobries. Kenny Everett. You will notice the legs of the person behind you. Yeah. Yes. We wish you a pleasant trip and welcome you to 10CC. Traveling home on the subway when this vision got on at Native and as I casually eyed the classifieds, she sat down next to me. Every head in the carriage was wandering. I replied with a smile on my face And as I slipped into the arms of Morpheus To daydream the rest of the way a cracker isn't it yeah some good stuff yeah i don't think that nothing from that sort of live era from that era was ever released so we we, of course we'll happily send you the the tape for that and all the other stuff we've played 
Yeah, yeah, there's like, yeah, like yeah. 50 minutes of stuff. I mean, it, it's by no means the whole set, but you've got Feel the <clears> Benefit <throat> on there. You've got that lovely extended art for art's sake. Yeah, it's terrific stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Terrific stuff. I, uh, I, I, rename, I, used, I used to rename that Feel Rick Fenabit. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to talk briefly about Billy's solo album, solo casting, which uh, which I think was, I don't know whether it was made after he'd left the band or was in the process of leaving, and I know he did all the arrangements and all the strings, um, and, and I know you didn't play on much of it, but because uh, Phil Collins actually played on the, major- on the majority of tracks and does wow, an incredible, okay. incredible job. David and Ian play on it, I notice, and you play on the track Take Me Up, I think. Possibly the, the loveliest song. It's, it's, it's a lovely album. I mean, I don't think it did anything. It's, it's not very well known, but... No, Bill is very creative guy, you know? He was kind of out there with ideas, and mm. uh, as you say, it never, it never sort of hit anybody's attention as such, mm. where you know sales would happen. But he was, he was always busy. Always, he was a real cheeky chappy, actually. <laughs> yeah, he, he went on to work. He went on to um, play with Dollar, didn't he? The early incarnation of Dollar, and I think you're right. Yeah, wow. you guys search stuff, don't you? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, no it's um, we're frightening. I, oh, we're frightening. So. <laughs> I know David and Billy wrote some songs together, and they both brought songs to the to the the band. But it seemed after a while that David's songs were even more commercial, and I don't know whether that kind of sidelined Billy's to a degree. I mean, whether it was that something that he, you know, he wasn't getting the singles, or, or I think you're probably right. I think you you've hit the nail on the head, really. It was a frustration. I think there were, you know, as you say, David was writing more the the pop instant song, and Mm. Billy was sort of different outlook on it. And I just think that that was a mismatch in in songwriting together, really. Uh, Okay. I mean, David wrote Magic, but when they did the publishing deal, it uh, it was agreed to just have, you know, due writing. So, oh, okay. uh, David uh, had to share the spoils, as it were. <laughs> right. So, did, do you think that, that, that <laughs> did that rankle a bit? Do you think? Ah, uh, I agree. But I don't think Billy had any grudges. He just got on with everything in his own way. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, bless him to get that album together and get Phil Collins to play in it. I don't know how he managed <laughs> to do that. Actually, I don't know who he approached to ask, but. Uh, yeah, it's got some fantastic... I can't remember the other players. I haven't got it in front of me, but honestly, Sean, it's worth <coughs> worth checking out. Yeah, I need um, to, I need to. It, it's on, it's uh, all uh, all on digital. It's there. It's right. um, yeah. Yeah. really worth listening to. I think I mentioned before, going back to Chris, uh, he and David and I did that camel tour in 82. Yeah. So we were... And that was another... Some good vocals on that tour. So Chris uh, was Chris was involved in that as well. Chris Rainbow. Yeah, Chris Rainbow. He was wow. on the tour. Yeah, 
There's uh, Andy Dolby, a left-handed guitarist, Andy Latimer, an American keyboard player, Pip, I think his name was, was it? Um, myself, David Payton, and uh, Chris Randall. Wow, what a lineup! Yeah, because yeah. we, we we were talking to Paul Burgess, of course, about his his time, and because you, you've gone in parallel, haven't you, with so many yeah, of these projects? Yeah, with Camel, yeah. And, um, yeah. and he was raving about Andy Latimer's guitar work. He oh. ra- he rates him right up there with Gilmore. Oh, so do I. Yeah, so do I. I mean, it, Andy's playing could bring a tear to your eye. Yeah. It's just so emotional. It's beautiful player. He really is. He's underrated player. Mm. Mm. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, I, mm. I, I, I got out my. Um, I've only got two cam- ah, two camels, yes. Uh, yes. and uh, and I was playing them recently and really enjoying it. It's such yeah. it's such melodic rock. Um, it is. It is gently still... gently proggy. Yes, yes. But it must that Even must have been it... a lovely challenge for you to play. Oh yeah, I mean, there's some time signatures in there that got your attention. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> if you lost it, it was a train crash. You know. <laughs> uh, are you are you one of these people, Stuart, that that feel a time, or do you actually count a time? Because I know there's some drummers who literally have to count it, but some can can feel it. I just feel it, right? Yeah, feel it. Um, I just feel the phrasing of the music, and uh, if that time signature grows with it, I mean, mm. I'm just playing what. Uh, uh, was put on the record, you know. But the only the only thing we have of that tour is a, is a live um, you know, Camel on the Road, nineteen eighty two, in Den Haag, in Holland, and I've got copies of it. But it was only released because Annie Latin was under pressure from the fan club to release something for that year. Mm. So he put it out, but it's, it's straight off the mixing desk in the hall. So everything you hear is as played. There's no overdubs whatsoever. Wow, like it's, it's a proper live album. Yeah, but the audience sound like they're in the next sort of next county. Yeah, you know, you right. Yeah, like <laughs> and and it's very sort of muddy in terms of the mix. I mean, you have to wind a lot of top on because the drums are very sort of ploddy. But, yes, uh, it's a great. I listen to it quite a bit. In fact. My nephew came over, he put it on, I thought, yeah, that's good, you know, that's some nice songs in <laughs> there. Some, there's some good time signatures in there. Hey, but, uh, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, of course, you, you got up to all that sort of malarkey with Jethro Tull as well, didn't you? Well, I would have done had I been available. Um, ah. I think I told the story. Because uh, we did a gig together, Paul and I, in a, in a, a boo ring in uh, Barcelona yes. in, in 82. And he was, he, we, were, we were the warm-up band in, uh, with Camel, and then there's Paul, you know, <laughs> next door, and they had the music up, you know, and it's flapping about in the breeze, and I thought, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> that was not that full of the bouncing ball music, you know. <laughs> no. It would be on the case there. And uh, I told you about Ian Anderson a few years later. Uh, yes, he, he, he sought yeah. you out, he, yeah. Well, uh, somehow the, his um, staff in the office had great difficulty finding me, but when they did, uh, you know, he wanted me to come along, and I said, well, I would, but I'm very flattered to be asked. 
<laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm actually into theatre now. I'm doing committed to theatre tours in West End. So. Mm-hmm. There you go. There's a story about uh, why I was called upon, but I, I'll tell you that in private sometime. <laughs> okay, <laughs> lovely, okay. Lovely, lovely. During that time, I'm not sure what year it was, but it must have been quite, it was either before Cameron or after it, but David and I did a, a session in um, Montserrat at Air Studios there uh, with um, Max Middleton, who was the keyboard player with Jeff Beck, mm-hmm. and a guy called Alan Murphy on guitar, who was just a fantastic player. He's sadly no longer with us, but he was all the whiny bar guitar stuff, mm. late 70s, early 80s. He was the man and a uh, remarkable player. Uh, so we went out there and actually met uh, George uh, George Martin, Sir George Martin. Oh, oh wow. wow. And he was in a safari suit. It was like meeting the headmaster. At <laughs> well, Alan, Alan Partridge. <laughs> Yeah, well, what a chap. He didn't actually produce the session he played on, though. He was just there as as the owner of the studio. Yeah, he was the, actually he was there with Tony Hart. I don't know if you remember Tony Hart. The, oh, yeah, the, the artist. The, the, the artist for the kids. Yeah. Right? He was, oh, yeah. Met him, yeah. Oh, my goodness. That was, that was a, a strange session, that, because um, we'd just gone in after, because the police did a lot of their stuff there. Yeah. The police albums. And McCartney came in after us to do Tug of War. Album, mm-hmm. um, which was really sorry to interrupt you. That I, I just actually somebody posted. I only mentioned it because it was released forty years ago today. That album. Oh my War. word! Good heavens! So it's forty years. Yeah, yeah, I know. 40, yeah, I know. Eric was <laughs> Eric was all over that album. Paul wasn't he? Tug, oh, Eric's a, yeah, a huge vocal part on that album. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah crikey! I've got a story in private as well. Oh, okay. Uh, yes, okay. Just to write this down, remind me. But uh, yeah, just <laughs> I'm writing them down. From a session point of view, um, the, the, the floor of the studio was all hardwood parky flooring, very nice. And uh, there was no drum riser. Uh, so just put a, you know, a, a carpet down, stop the kit creeping around as you play. So I did all the tracks, uh, did all the BVs with uh, David, did all the percussion, all the tambourine stuff. Um, I got the nickname as Chucky because I went there white and I came back white because I was never <laughs> out of the studio. <laughs> so it came the day when I'd done all my bit and then guitars come in to do their bit and uh, I thought, great, I'm going to the sun. As I was leaving the studio, in came these guys carrying these great big wooden things. They'd built a drum riser, as oh, I had oh, suggested. Wow. Right? Yeah. I said, you make it about, you know, eight wide and six feet deep. And uh, I said, make it about 18 inches off the floor because then it has its own sort of box resonance in it and give yeah. body to the kit. So the producer said, come on, for the hell of it, let's just set the kit up again on the drum riser. So we did, mic it up. And from being said, okay, doom, doom, it was okay, doom, 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 yeah. you know, it was like <laughs> yeah. proper yeah. sign of that. Whoa. So he said, <clears throat> He said, we've got a drum sound. He said, you know what I'm going to ask you now? I said, yeah. <laughs> we could do but the whole said, fucking thing again. <laughs> Correct. <Yeah. laughs> but I said, the one problem is, he said, if we do this, as you're recording, we are wiping your original drum tracks. Because right. all, all 24 tracks are full. And he said, the album's in your hands, Stuart. And I thought, that's comforting. <laughs> and was there a, cl- was there a click? That you could play to, uh, or were you playing to the instruments? 
some had click, but I, I more or less play two instruments. I think Alan Parsons sort of uh, stuck the metronome in my head with his sessions because it was very. They had actually made a. There was no click track in those days. They made a, a loop. Mm-hmm. And there was a fault in the loop. There was one that was actually late. And I said, yeah, it's, about it's about the fifth one. And they wouldn't have it. I said, listen. Oh, wow. Yeah, it is. And it just did my head in this thing. I was just slightly ahead of the beat. Oh, my So, goodness. yeah, when I did that uh, I did that album, I just re-recorded all the tracks, Wiping Heaven I'd done. And it was one of those. That's it. Wow. Went, well done. Yeah. So, half a day in the sun and then back home. <laughs> <laughs> What was the artist then, Stuart? You mentioned the players. It was sort of very sort of middle-of-the-road artist, sound to EMI, um, okay. sort of like a cliff, you know, quite a softish voice. Yeah. Nice fella. John Townley, that was his name. Did it okay. Did it go on to have any success, Stuart, after that? There you got sort of airplay on Radio 2. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, nothing seemed to come of it. Hmm. So, after, after all that effort. A real, a, a real cracking band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all arrived there as session musicians. I'd never met Alan uh, uh, Murphy or Max before. And uh, there was a club on the island, a nightclub. And this American guy appears at the studio saying, we need a bass player for tonight. Mm-hmm. And David goes, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> anyway, we went down to this club and uh, there was a lovely old... Ludwig super classic kit sitting there and it was rusted to blazes from the sea air. All the <laughs> all the fittings were pitted with rust. Wow. There's so many pieces I could do with new heads in it. So we just sat down and played. And then that's when I realized how brilliant Alan Murphy was. He just started playing and created a groove and a mood and we just followed him. And we played for about 20 minutes without stopping. And he just went through all sorts of time feels and all the rest wow. of it. It was great. I thought, this is going to be a good little band to play <laughs> for, the, for, the, uh, for the session. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. That was probably the scariest session I had to do, knowing that I'd <laughs> fell it up and all that, all that expensive trip is for nothing. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> but not your fault. It wasn't, it wasn't your decision to, you know, to, to wipe the drum track, for goodness sake. No, no, I mean, well, all the tracks have been used up. Yeah. And you think of all the stuff that went on it. Um, yeah. And he said, well, he, he put it in my in my court, as it were. Yeah. Do you want yeah. to do it? And, you know, having heard the drums, the way they shoot sound, I said, yeah, let's go for it. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. But something that really piqued my interest when I was listening to some Alan Parsons projects, and just uh, reading a little bit and reading some of the album sleeves and everything. And I, an, a name came up. Um, it seems to be a drummer that you were sharing sessions with. Maybe you were doing different sessions. A guy called Burley Drummond. I think this was Alan um, had been over to America and been involved in some band over there. And he'd got them to play a couple of the tracks. And then I... I don't know if I played over them or played along with them. The the track there was two or three tracks, maybe just two. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the band now. Uh, uh, can I show you something? 
I just had a, a little listen around for, for some of this stuff and I really liked it and it re reminds me of one of my very, very favourite bands at the moment. So just, just indulge me for a second. Yeah. This is a band, an American band called Ambrosia. That's that, it. That was the band that he was in. That was the band, Ambrosia. Yeah. Yeah. Check out this sound, Paul. So there we are, Ambrosia, mm. biggest part of me. Yeah. Now, I'm going to play you something else. This is what I obsessively play to anyone who comes for a drink or for a meal at our house. Every time, for some reason, I put on this band. I absolutely adore them. They're very recent, sort of <clears throat> from about 2010 onwards. It's just a duo called Young Gun Silver Fox. Listen to this. It's coming around again. Changes in. So the spirit, nice. the spirit of West Coast and Ambrosia is alive and well. <laughs> yeah, is that American band? Is that? Is yeah, I think I think they are. I it's think... weird that that video was shot in London. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think they're they're West uh, Coast based. Oxford Circus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but isn't that lovely? I think both yeah. tunes have got that one Beautiful. that wonderful West Coast sound. Yeah, I mean the first Ambrosia track sounded very hollow notes, didn't it? Yeah, very much yeah. so. And and. Uh, Young Gun Silver Fox, I think they've got a bit of a, an, obs an obsession with Hall and Oates. Certainly yes. the, the early you can, stuff. You can hear it in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's good, good stuff. Yeah. So you you were rubbing shoulders in, in the Alan Parsons days. You were rubbing shoulders with some great people. I noticed Francis Monkman from Sky was on there playing keyboards. Did you have much to do with the, these session guys coming in? Not really. No. Um, we just did our bit as, as pilot. You know, percussion, all the backing, uh, some backing vocals. Yeah. And then it was left to Andrew, uh, Andrew Poe, or, you know, the, the three of them, Alan and uh, Eric, what they were going to do with the rest of it. Really. Sure, sure, sure. And, uh, you know, huge orchestras would... I was never there to hear that, but the end product was sort of wow. So you didn't even hear the top lines sometime. You were just sort of playing to the track and the, and the chords and the backing vocals and stuff like that. Or? Uh, yeah, we'd, I think we maybe got a guide vocal from somebody. Okay. Uh, okay. And, and that was it. And wow. it was just a chart, play this, play that. I mean, my my playing was just very simple and straightforward. And that's I think just what he wanted. You know, just just a solid. Solid drum part yes. without any too many frills. I mean, you can always go back and do a better job. Yeah. Now that you know, the end product's been done, you can you could sure. fill into certain parts of the, the song. It, yeah, I suppose you're almost going in blind, aren't you? Unlike pilot working as a self-contained unit, if you if it if you don't know what the finished product's going to be, you're going to keep it simpler, I suppose. Because you you just don't know. You couldn't play around what's not there already, I suppose. Yeah. Well, one of the strangest things you asked me to do, they got they got three timpanis in, pedal timpanis, and mm -hmm. uh, I had to play 
from the lowest note on the, the bass timpani up to the highest note, which matched the lowest note on the, the intermediate one, yes. and the same up to the, the tenor one. So it was rolling, okay. operating the pedal at the same time. Yeah. Very strange. Something <laughs> never done in my life before. I'm playing tubular bells as well. Oh, you know, Big Ben. Yeah, it's good fun. Absolutely. <laughs> I was. I um. I spanned my my LP, the the Edgar Allan Poe. LP the other day after we chatted Stuart and I, I loved it Cask of Amontillado did you you must have sung on that one I, I, I presume you're doing all the high bits on that uh, wonderful probably, harmonies probably me and David yeah yeah Paul do you David know that I, do you know that track no I'm a bit out of my depth with uh, AP I, I know the title I'm trying to remember how, how, it, how it was, was oh. it give, give us the blast yeah, give us the blast it'll, it'll, be, it'll be easy to find <laughs> Education for me to yeah, this. Honestly, the, the harmonies are terrific. Possibly the only the only song I know that's named after a type of sherry. By the last breath of the four winds that blow. So who's the lead vocalist? Is it is it Eric or Wilson or is it somebody else? Uh, no, he had guests vocalist. I'm not sure this is. Okay, I can find out. Yeah. I love that, and the reason that I, the vocals sound a bit like John Miles, which is yes, uh, he is on there, and the track in that oh, section, okay. that middle section, sounds a bit like music by John is, Miles. Is that is that John lead singing? It might, it be. might be, it might be, it might be. I reckon. It, now you've said that, yeah, he is one of the singers. The, the vocal here are the vocalists: Stuart, John Miles, Arthur Brown, yes, Alan Ooh. Parsons, Terry, Terry Sylvester, yep. Oh, he sang with the Hollies, didn't he? Yeah, Sylvester Hollies and yeah. Alan Alan uh, Clark was on it as well. Okay, oh, okay. Leonard White. Oh, he was on our robot. Okay, Leonard Whiting, Jack Harris, uh, Eric ah. Eric Wolfson, of course. Jack Jane Harris. Jane Powell, Smokey Parsons. That's Alan's wife. Ah. Ah. Oh, okay. Um, Alan's wife at the time, yeah. Okay, mm. and uh, you and David from Pilot and uh, the English Choral. Oh, there you are. <laughs> yeah, there we are. So I reckon that's John Miles' voice. Yeah, yes, I, think I, think I agree. Yes, I think it's another one gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah very, very sad. But uh, yeah, very beautiful sad. harmonies, you know, sort of Beach Boys-esque, and I, I hear yeah. elements of, of the Zombies, Odyssey and Oracle in that track as well. It's, it's lovely stuff, yeah. isn't it? Colin Blunstone's on uh, iRobot, isn't he? Uh, Turn of a Friendly it. Card, I think he's on, isn't he? Uh, yeah. As well? Yeah. And he sings, he's, the one track I do know by APP is Old and Wise. He sings lead on that. That's Colin right. Blunstone, that's right. Which is beautiful. Yeah. That's yeah. 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 Eric had a lovely voice. 
we, we actually, like I told you, we chucked him out of the studio, Abbey Road, <laughs> the studio, because he was fooling about so much that David and I couldn't get on with the BVs. <laughs> so we physically opened the door and chucked him out. You know? <laughs> Brilliant. And you know about the early connection between 10CC and Eric, presumably Stuart, up in Strawberry, because he recorded a couple of singles, sort of 71, 72, with, with the 10CC boys, before they were called 10CC. Did you know that? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, Hot Legs and all that, wasn't it? Yeah, Santo K, wasn't that the name of his single? That's right, Sean? that's right, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Sort of precursor to... Or before 10cc so all these connections of course i mean the great the great musicians will kind of gravitate towards each, each other i suppose which is a, which is a natural thing isn't it strange that they all knew each other and it took so long for them to actually get together as a band that is <laughs> the kick yeah. off you know it took neil sadaka to actually sort of get and bang their heads together apparently and say look what you're doing you know let's let's get this going as a band yeah but i'm yeah. glad i'm glad they did wait you know because um prior to the 72 prior to them actually getting decide, making that decision um their stuff was a bit hit and miss eric was still learning his job behind the desk um Kevin and Lowell were kind of maturing as as inventive songwriters. If I think if 10CC had formed earlier, it wouldn't have been quite the same beast. Yeah, perhaps. I'm, I'm glad yeah, that yes. they kind of reached a level of sort of that they were bursting with creativity by the time. They yeah, yeah. absolutely. Good point. Good point. Yeah. 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 Yes. In fact, you, you, you'll like this, Stuart, and I think I told you, Sean, um, one of the uh, one of the guys on the 10CC groups, a guy called Andy Fee, who oh, yes. posted very excitedly. He was just down his local club, which is the Dog House in Ramsbottom, which I've actually played at myself, and he, he was watching this little band, Clarkie's Cat. I mean, they're a very accomplished band, but they're just a, I think they're a local band, and who was sitting on sitting in on drums but Paul. That was just last Saturday. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, and he just, he's yeah. always playing, isn't he? He, he just yeah, he, he, he loves yeah. playing all the time. So. Yeah, good on him, good on him. Yeah, yeah. You know, one, one week 20,000, <clears> next week about 50 people in a pub. Yeah, yeah, and that's he doesn't he doesn't mind one way or the other, which is the real mark of a, a great player. The joy, the, yeah. the joy of playing. I did, I did the same, uh, you know, uh, gigging and doing uh, pub gigs. Uh, the one pub band I played in in Sussex with Big Jim Sullivan, I don't know if you remember him, with Tom. Oh, Dillon. yeah. The, uh, he was a great guitar, guitar, the session guitarist. Who, yes. Yeah, and yeah. One night we were playing and there was a, above average crowd and I thought, what's going on? In walks Jimmy Page and starts <laughs> playing next to me. Oh, excellent. And he was very tasteful playing. I, I thought it was going to be some avant-garde and very loud. He was quite quiet and mm-hmm. very nice playing. Yeah. His, his uh, Les Paul was leaning against my hi-hat and I was gouging a bit out of his... Hi, gouging. I'm gouging his guitar. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a night. My God. This was wow. What a perfect point to to finish. Stuart, thanks so much. This has been a lot lot of fun. Yeah, well, I I can waffle forever if you want. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, enjoy the rest of the evening. It's been good fun, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you, you, Stuart. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take take care. Take care. Keep in in touch. See you soon.
You've been listening to The Consequences podcast, produced by Paul McNulty and Sean McCreevy. Thanks for listening.